What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, I think, I think this might be our actual very first film director. The director of Her Smell, Alex Ross Perry, is on the show today. This is an amazing conversation. More on that in one second. But first... If you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That and the Facebook page are run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, long-suffering Tristan Abraham. And he will get the message to me and we can communicate that way. If you can want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way of doing that is by telling all your friends, letting everyone you know that would like this thing know that there is this thing out there. That's the best way to support it. But if you'd like to support it other ways, you can subscribe to it, write a review, rate it um, on your platform of choice. There's so many now. So I was like going to be like, oh, you can do it on this and this. There's just, you know, whatever you listen to this on, just, you know, do what you do. Do what you do. Speaking of doing what they do, thank you to the fine folks at Vans for doing what they do. They have come on board this podcast and said, you do what you do, Damien. Just book whoever you want to book. Make the show, and we will support you in doing that. And just don't want you to do it out of your pocket. And also, they send me on these crazy trips. Like, I'm going to be working on, in the background right now, a, a first. I'm going to be working on a very first a Turned Out a Punk documentary on, it's called The Spirit of DIY. And it's just kind of looking at the series of shows that I was just on. And Vans is allowing me to do that. So thank you everyone at Vans for allowing me to do this kind of stuff and for you for, for supporting this stuff too. I really appreciate all you out there listening to as well. So the, the combination of, of you, you know, you listening, uh, Vans and my brother, this, that's what makes this show happen. You don't need me. I'm just the, the person at the center of the storm. There could be anyone in this, the center of the storm, right? Like the, it's the people that make the storm happen that I need. So thank you everyone for making this storm happen. Uh, that's it. Uh, oh, also thank you everyone for the Patreon and I'm going to be going to Australia with fucked up starting this week. So if you're listening to the show, when it comes out, check your local listings. I'm going to be in Australia and New Zealand. And if you want to come up and talk to me about this podcast, let's do it. Let's have a good time. And, uh, yeah. And hopefully I'll interview some people over there. I'm really excited to interview some people over there. A lot of great punk came out of Australia. I don't know if you know that. I'm sure you do. That's why I'm saying it, uh, you know, kind of jokingly. If you don't know it, but, uh, you know, now you do. Go check out some of that Australian punk because it will change your goddamn life. All right. Speaking of changing your life, today on the show, Alex Ross Perry of the uh, film world will change your life. Alex is someone who I've been a fan of the films he's made for a while. 
And most recently, he's kind of blown up because of his film, Her Smell. So having him on the show was was a no-brainer. But in discussing this stuff in advance and finding out about his his working at a video store and my old working at video stores, oh, I knew this would be a dream episode. And this is really, you know, what this show is about is linking punk to all sorts of adjacent worlds and kind of the energy of DIY punk rock and seeing how that energy is taken up in different places by by different people that kind of came out of it. And that's exactly what happens here in this episode. Like this, you listen to this episode, you feel like you can go out there and make a movie. You know, I think Alex is really kind of underselling how much effort goes into this sort of stuff. Well, I don't think he's underselling how much effort goes into it. I think, you know, like the fact that he's saying that it just kind of like, you just go out there and you just do it, uh, undersells how much effort's involved. But hey, I haven't made a movie. He's made the movie. So listen to this episode and go out there and, and make your own movie, right? So anyway, everyone, I'm not going to rattle on anymore. Check out her smell on various streaming services and on-demand services and a video store. If you can find a video store, I'm sure they've got it on DVD there. I'm sure there's got to be a physical release. He would not let this happen without a physical release. And also check out the amazing soundtrack. It's got an incredible soundtrack, some original songs and... All that. But anyway, here is Alex Ross Perry on Turned Out a Punk. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm very excited to get to do this conversation because not only am I a fan of your, your films, but also I have this sort of shared uh, cultural touchstone with you in that we were both video store jockeys at one point in our lives. Did you, was that a, a store that you worked in? Did you work in, in record stores as well? And this was no. just one of many. No, I was, I, I think uh, video stores were my calling and I worked at two different ones um, over a sort of a 10 year period or six year period. But yeah, it was definitely my God, do I miss video stores? Like with every fiber of my being. Yeah, it's always pleasant when you're traveling and you stumble upon one. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, weirdly, cities that are not the big cities seem to be okay with with them, similar to bookstores. I mean, you're in a college town somewhere, you're pretty likely to still find a decent video store and two or three bookstores in a, in a five-mile radius. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. I think there's a, uh, I don't know, maybe in a big city there's just so many more people spread out that they can't focus on one store or I don't know. Cause I'm now I'm trying to, I'm racking my brain in Toronto. I think we just lost queen video, which might've been one of the last. Best I do believe that I heard about that. That's the one that's in enemy, right? Yeah. That or, is the one in enemy. Sorry. That is the one that, that just finally um, shut down. So I was, when I was walking around Toronto last year, I did find a store. It was nothing like deeply crazy or, or one of a kind, but it was really big and operational somewhere between the winter garden theater and my hotel that was just kind of like tucked into the ground floor of a building. Does this ring a bell? Yeah. I think that probably would have been a Bay street video. Um, that sounds correct. Which, which is, you're right. That is one of the other sort of holdouts as well. That's still there. Cause there's, well, you know, this. there's stuff that you can't find on, on streaming service. I think it's even worse for movies than it is for music. Um, Oh, certainly, certainly. I mean, just because the rights issues being what they are, there's there's a real, a real difficult divide of, yeah, things just vanish. Well, we will get to vanishing culture, I'm sure, throughout this conversation. But I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is 
Alex, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I like, I feel like this is not a particularly, you know, I'm not going to have like a, an exciting or, or unique answer, but, you know, I, I was 10 when, uh, when, when Dookie came out. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, to me, that was just such a exciting piece of music to discover, um, to be at an age where I was getting into discovering my own music and hearing Green Day's songs. I just, couldn't believe what I was hearing and of course had no prior context. Now, obviously this is a very pedestrian answer, but I want to quickly, you know, make sure to add on that it was very quickly through this and this because of the sort of connective tissue way that my brain started functioning at that time and still does that like very swiftly through that, I was like on to lookout and operation IV. And then from there I could like go out in one direction or another forwards or backwards. But yeah, it really, for me, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say, cause I still really love that album, but Absolutely. That, 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 that was it for, well, for a young, a young boy in the suburbs in 1994. Well, also like what an like amazing period, like that Nirvana to green day period to have those be the bands that kind of break you in. Cause on either side of that, you got like Motley Crue and Limp Bizkit, which I think would lead you down different paths than you would get into with Green Day or Nirvana, you know? Like, those were, like, kind of like, like, as you say, like, led you right to look at. Yeah, I mean, by the time that those, you know, later 90s bands were, were prominent, I, I had such little interest in new music. I had become such a snob, and at that point, you know, all I cared about was just going as far backwards as possible and, and educating myself. But it was a pretty exciting moment. I mean, this was kind of when you know, a band that sounded like that, that really had viably, you know, real punk backgrounds could become very, very popular. Mm -hmm. And really like, you know, this is kind of something that I would love to see, you know, like a real study of this, but I feel like the work that a lot of bands like that did bringing pretty, you know, not that well known at the time, at least to the audiences that were buying the ticket, opening acts out with them. I think really, you know, that, that showed me a lot as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Like I remember seeing like the presidents of the United States of America and red cross open for them. <laughs> that is an and, awesome like, bill. At the time it was like, this band is great. I've never heard of them. And now 20 some odd years later, I'm like, that's pretty cool that red cross was the opening act of that show. That was just like, kids like me who'd heard the band on the radio and wanted to see the headliner, but they've really brought an incredible act out with them. Yeah, no, I think that's the thing. Like, you know, once again, it's that great period where, you know, a green day going around, bringing out pansy division on tour, or you had like, you know, even, even blink One Eighty Two bringing out bad religion on tour when they were playing stadiums, like exposing bad religion to like a whole swath of kids that were only kind of conditioned to watching MTV for music. I'm 99% certain that the first time I saw Bad Religion was at something called the Snow Core Tour with Blink-182. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which was not a stadium. It was a, you know, 2000 capacity standing room venue, but I I'm I'm for certain that Blink-182 was like the second to last band and Bad Religion was the headliner of the night. I think yeah, then I cuz I remember a few years even I think after that once uh, like Blink had exploded, they, you know, said to Bad Religion Let's get back in that van together and give, give you a little more exposure. On it was story. really, it was really amazing. And I mean, you know, on, on that sort of same, same track, like, you know, for me, 
like having the ability to hear Green Day or, you know, very quickly thereafter, like hear Rancid, who were both like, you know, currently on alternative radio, but also a great sort of tip of the iceberg to then get the Epitaph catalog and see how many more albums from it I could acquire and then kind of piece together the the connection between Operation Ivy on Lookout and Rancid on Epitaph and then Bad Religion and just like, it was just so easy for me. You know, I didn't, I lived in the suburbs. It's not like I had access to things other people didn't have, but I was always like a real, you know, like a record label croucher and always kind of got pointed at things from a cover song, which is why uh, in her smell, you know, there's a lot of covering because I just, I feel like, you know, you would hear something pretty in retrospect, not particularly of deep cut, like sublime covering bad brains, house of suffering. Yeah. And then I was like, wow, bad brains sound great. I should get an album of theirs. And now I'm like, getting you know now now i'm going to get a second third bad brains album uh and and now through that it's just like what else is on this record label yeah i'm the same way too i find like record labels really is what tells a story a lot of times too like it just really gives you kind of like a bigger picture of what was going on at the time yeah and it was just it made perfect sense for me to i mean in my mind the the presence of a a paper Xerox catalog that would come with your initial purchase was really a big part of how I would look at the SST catalog or, you know, just like things that to me were, were largely bands that were not currently active or at least not at the peak of their activity, Mm -hmm. but could sort of, you know, and I never, something I learned a lot when I was working on this movie is there's very few bands that I had their entire discography like I never, I was never that much of a, like a collector that if I got one Bad Brains album, I needed to have every single one. So I generally had like, you know, I would pick like I'd rather have two or three albums by every band that sounds interesting than every single album by two bands. Well, I think it was also like the the resource commitment you needed back then, right? Like you, you know, like like you're saying, you wanted to spread out your taste as much as you could and you only had so much money to buy so many CDs. Yeah, it was very limited. And, uh, you know, there was a great, great new and used CD store near me called repo records that we, we tipped the hat to with one of the price stickers on one of the CDs and the end credits of her smell. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, they had great stuff and it was small, but it was obviously run and stacked by college students who had incredibly good taste. So there was access to, you know, some, you know, use things that were cheaper, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a commitment and, you know, I mean, I remember I had a friend that at some point commented that I had had life won't wait on in my car for like a month just without ever changing the CD because I, I was obsessed with it. I thought it was so incredible and I just, yeah, I never stopped listening to it. Well, yeah, and I guess that's the other thing is you would you would get that kind of level of engagement with a record that now, you know, it's it's hard to to kind of get that out of an audience. Like people listen to something once, and then there's something else they got to listen to immediately after. Yeah, no, it was really exciting. I mean, I, I don't drive a lot, but I, I mean, I still have my my car, and I do have uh, 
you know, a bunch of CDs in it. And it is still fun when we're on like a road trip or something to, you know, really like just dig in. And maybe when it ends, you just actually feel like listening to it again. <laughs> yep. But that was really, you know, like that, that kind of culture was very, very specifically exciting to me. And again, just sort of like using a couple of these acts as a way of getting into three or four affiliated acts, like just via one thing or another, I would get a Descendants CD and then I would want to get an all CD. And, you know, it's just like, it all seems so connected in a very logical way, but it all was very contemporary and then just slowly creeping my way backwards and really discovering, you know, just, you know, this is like 1996, seven, eight, like there's only a, there's only so much of a history at this point to feel like you can catch up on mm-hmm. <laughs> by my teenage standards. I could feel like an expert within a couple of years and, you know, could simultaneously be seeing bouncing souls or, or no effects for the fifth or sixth time, but also like just thinking, you know, these five clash CDs that I have represent like the pinnacle of all musical accomplishment that has ever happened since then. And nothing will ever top them. Yeah. And, you know, like did get to see, I think on two separate occasions, Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros mm-hmm. on those last couple of tours. Um, but again, like at that point, weren't those albums on, uh, what were those out? Al- what were those last couple of Mescaleros albums? Like, do you remember? Anti or Epitaph proper. Right, exactly. Like at that point, these, all these things had converged. Yeah. Like the past and the present had just kind of become one thing. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, this all just made perfect sense to me. I guess go- going back just before this, like, you know, you mentioned getting into Green Day at 10 years old, which is, you know, pretty young. Like, where were you? Where were, were you like into music growing up prior to that? Or was that your first band you kind of discovered or? That was pretty much the beginning. I mean, you know, like a lot of people, you see something like that. You see those, you see their faces on MTV and you're just, they're like, I mean, this is, this is for me. I, I don't really have any memory of being into things earlier than that. My dad, um, my dad worked in radio from before I was born until just a few years ago. So it wasn't at all strange or, you know, discouraged for me to be incredibly excited by that kind of a culture and always had a real supportive uh, parent willing to drive me to a concert, be it there, wait the whole time and then drive me and my friends home. <laughs> That's awesome. So that was, that was pretty, pretty amazing. And, you know, yeah. my, my, my dad and to a lesser extent, my mom definitely sat through more than their share of very peculiar concerts that clearly they had less to no interest in. <laughs> well, what were their tastes? Like what was the kind of music you were growing up around? Um, I remember for some reason the tapes that were in my mom's car when I was growing up, like she was really into Joan Jett always. Like she loved, really loved Joan Jett. She really loved the pretenders. Um, She really loved the police. I feel like those are the three acts that I associate the most with my mom's car. Your mom, your mom has great taste. Yeah. I mean, it was very specific. I mean, to me, that just was because of hearing it in the car. That was just mainstream music. Um, my dad always really loved Dire Straits. That was like a big band of his, and he's a big Springsteen guy. Um, so all this stuff was, you know, pretty. It just didn't occur to me that this wasn't like the, you know, the popular music of another generation. It just seemed so obvious because I heard it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, when you kind of like first started going to concerts, was what was your first ever show you went to? Uh, the first show I went to, the first concert I ever went to was. Um, Stone Temple Pilots with Local H opening for them. 
Oh, that's a pretty cool opener. Again, it's like another example of, you know, I guess they had a radio hit, so it's not like yeah. they were just out of nowhere. But, you know, that's like a, that was, a, that was in like a 20,000 seat arena. Yeah. That's yeah. like in a place where a basketball team plays. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I remember it clearly because it was the first concert I ever went to. And then that was followed shortly after by, uh, by, by, by Silverchair, I remember. Mm-hmm. And then right after that was Bush with, Veruca Salt opening. Did was Silverchair? Did that band? Um, God, it wasn't Helmet, but was it like Handsome or something that opened? I don't. That I don't remember. Okay. I, I remember them coming through, and they had once again, like you know, keeping with this theme you brought up. They they had someone open for them that was like a super group of ex New York hardcore people or something. Huh. Like it was like once again like a really cool opener being exposed to like a much wider audience. I'm sure through yeah. that tour. Yeah, no, I don't remember specifically, but, you know, obviously, like, I'm kind of, again, like, I'm, I'm at a point in my, you know, I'm young enough here to the fact that these are all, like, huge alternative arena rock concerts doesn't make me feel like a total, like a total, total phony about this. <laughs> because, you know, within a few years, I had basically, you know, as you already pointed out, what was popular in a radio sense and selling out venues of that size had changed, and my taste had gotten much smaller, and it went from... Or, you know, the big shows I would go to would be 20,000 seats to the big shows I would go to would be like 2,000. Yeah, no, definitely that, uh, that, that's the, I guess, musical maturity sign in punk rock when the shows start getting smaller and eventually you're at shows with only 10 people there. And then you know Absolutely. Yeah. Days. I mean, and I, I certainly got to those and I guess yeah. if we go chronologically, I'll get to all that as well. <laughs> oh, we will. Oh my God. In pain, painfully slow detail, Alex, I promise you. All um, right. What were some of the, uh, what were some of those bands that were happening locally? Like you mentioned you were from Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. I'm from outside Philadelphia. So what were some of the, were there any local bands like was Digger or Weston or were like, what were some of the local bands that you were seeing at that time? Um, well at that time, not many. I mean, there is the, the, the alternative station uh, at the time was, uh, WDRE and they had these kind of compilations with, um, you know, bands that I really only remember because to me they seemed so big at the time and none of them were really punk at all. They were all just total like mid to late nineties post alternative. Like there was this band called God lives underwater that was very popular. Um, but you know, I mean, it was so much more exciting for me to be like, because of my dad's radio station access, able to potentially be seeing these bigger shows that I perhaps even free, yeah. So there was really no limit on how many of them I could go to. Yeah. But yeah, at the time I wasn't really aware of anything local. That really didn't come until, you know, later when I was like actually seeing very small shows. I feel like the biggest, I mean, I never, ever listened to this band, but by far the biggest, most popular local band at the time was G Love and Special Sauce. Okay, definitely. That's like, yep. like if Philadelphia was going to output a <laughs> band, that was it. Yeah. It's also, it's, it's weird how Philadelphia, like, like, you know, the the Hooters are like there's always like this band that's like l- big in Philadelphia but seemingly not anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the history of the music there is really so based in soul. Yeah, that that was really the city's musical identity, and you you know, like this kind of runoff where you know it's not it's not where Springsteen is from, but like a Springsteen show in Philadelphia is as big of a local thing as as it could be anywhere. Yeah. He's up there. there was so much more of that. I mean, you know, I guess like famously, 
like Bowie recorded Diamond Dogs in Philadelphia with, you know, some like 60s, 70s funk and soul musicians. So, yeah, I wasn't really aware of anything like that at this point. It wasn't until, you know, I started being in high school and hanging out with slightly older kids who were much more sophisticated and they would be in bands and they'd be playing at churches or here or there that I would get to see any of that. Well, yeah, because you are so young, were there any kids around you your age that were into music in the same way you were at this point? Not really. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, like, you know, you kind of have a friend that you could go to this thing with. Like, you know, you have the friend that wants to go, you know, see, like, the Fat Records touring bands. Like, wants to go see Lagwagon and wants to go see, like unwritten law which was like you know like things like that then you have friends that will be more into going to the bigger show um i was also really you know like at the time again because of my dad's radio station like there were tickets available to shows that i was interested in at a really big level that no one else at his station being kind of older hits of the 70s would be interested in so through that i was able to go see you know, in 20,000 seat arenas like Metallica and Iron Maiden and stuff like that at a weirdly, weirdly young age, because that seemed cool to me. I mean, the whole thing is just like, if it seemed cool to me and if it seemed like I would be cooler by proxy of experiencing this, then I wanted to be there. And it didn't make a difference if it was a huge Metallica show or like going as a freshman with a senior at my school who gave me a flyer for his band to see them play like in a coffee house or something like whatever it was that seemed like an, like access to, to fun beyond my years was exactly what made the most sense. So when did it kind of change for you? Like, when did you start going to like finding out about these smaller shows? Well, like, you know, definitely by like through these, through these older guys, I think. Um, mm. So like, you know, sophomore, junior and senior year where in my high school and sort of in the early formation of me, being very excited by, you know, shooting stuff and editing things. There was a, there was a TV studio in the basement of my high school. And as a eighth grader before I got there, and then as a freshman, you know, there were these older guys um, who had this show called Telegrande. It was a guy named John Davies, a guy named Dan Alertigi, and a guy named Chris Swisher. And, you know, they were only three years older than me, but they seemed so wise and so mature. Yeah. And, this guy, John, who, who actually lives in New York, who I've gotten to connect with a few times over the last couple of years, like his, his shirts that he would wear would be like advertisements for things I had to discover. Like him wearing a propagandi shirt was like all I needed to know to go to Repo Records and ask for less talk, more rock. And hanging out with those guys and just like lurking around them and asking what they were going to like was really the start of like I already mentioned, like a bunch of bouncing souls concerts, Mm -hmm. but then also stuff that was much more, you know, like shows where this one guy who was affiliated with them named Colin Comstock, you know, he was in a lot of local hardcore bands. Um, And then suddenly I was just like at a bunch of these local hardcore shows and I was like a freshman or a sophomore And this just seemed so exciting. I didn't really realize at the time, but I sort of came to realize this, that a lot of that stuff was like weirdly Christian. Okay. Yeah. Which was not something that I had any frame of reference for. (laughs) Yeah. And because it's so screamy, like it wasn't as though I was at these shows, like hearing the lyrics. Yeah. 
because they're, you know, in a rec room and the sound is poor. Yeah, it's a terrible And it's just fun to be there. But yeah, yeah, weirdly, there was a lot of that around. Like there was this band that, so Colin was in this band called DPW, who I probably saw like five or six times. And, you know, they opened for this band called Zao, Z-A-O. Yeah, yeah, from Florida, right? Yeah, I think so. I feel like they played in Philadelphia like every three months, though. Yeah, they definitely, they were on tooth and nail and had a moment where they were, yeah, like like kind of crossed over completely that those two scenes kind of blurred together. That's another, yeah, that's a record label I haven't even thought of in all my like thinking of record labels. Tooth and nail. Yeah, that's a, that's another one that I just like, once I saw that logo, I was just like, what else is on this label? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel like they were around a lot. Um but then in Philadelphia, there's this there's this promotion, uh, you know, concert promoting group called R5. Oh, you know very familiar with R5. Absolutely. Big. Yeah. Sean that guy, Sean Agnew. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I only just knew him as the guy who was around, but like my, by my junior and senior year, and then certainly like, you know, on summer breaks from college, like the first Unitarian church was the place to be. Yes. Like that was my favorite venue to see anything during some summers. I would be there three, four nights a week excruciatingly hot yes. and just never more fun. You know, it, it, the, the shows had gone from like seeing Stone Temple Pilots at the, at the basketball arena to, you know, shows in the two, you know, Blink-182 and Bad Religion and this venue called the Electric Factory. And now I'm like at the basement of the First Unitarian Church. And again, just like basically, you know, like one band on the bill would be enough to go. Mm-hmm. And because I was so into so many bands that were at this point completely extinct, that this felt like the most relevant and exciting way to experience something that felt real and relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever see Ink and Dagger? Hmm. I don't think so. It doesn't ring a bell. Vampire themed hardcore band from Philadelphia. Hmm. They would have been around that time too. It's entirely likely that I did. (laughs) <laughs> probably from from the first unitarian church during that period there's a good chance you would have seen yeah um, but yeah like but through these guys i'm talking about in the basement like not just propaganda but it was through them that i discovered jawbreaker what you know which was defunct at that time but just to brazil were just sort of forming so like there was still a way to kind of have a connection with that um and i'm trying to think of other you know, I, I mean, it was through them that I sort of learned about the Descendants because not only would they wear these shirts on their show, but they would put music in the show as well. And, you know, they were just older than me, but they seemed like they had the best taste and anything, you know, like, no, I feel like they were really into no use for a name, you know, like bands that were big at the time. Mm-hmm. But to me, I had never heard of and then instantly was very taken with. And then, you know, again, just like by getting something totemic on a, on a label and talking to these guys, like, you know, I'd known about minor threat for years, but then it was about embrace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just one thing leads to another. Do you mention like, you know, be, going to this uh, TV station thing before you were in high school, had you seen this show on TV or well, I was watching it before I was in high school? Cause it was broadcast yeah. throughout the whole town. Oh, so was it like, so it's just like a, that's like so awesome world. for a high school. Like just, picture, just picture Wayne's World, but made by a 16-year-old. That's the best thing ever. That's incredible. Yeah, it was really, it was really wonderfully unique. Um, so yeah, so these, you know, there'd be like a show every Thursday. So when I was in eighth grade, before I'd ever set foot in high school, I just wanted to get there and participate in this. That's awesome. And then freshman year, I just, you know, went and basically put myself at the mercy and said anything I can do to earn my way in. 
and I shot the elementary school talent show for the news because Thursdays was when these guys show was on. And then Friday was when the news was on for the whole weekend. And I just had to do everything I could. And, you know, these guys, they, they, they knew everything, every, every band they listened to, I wanted to listen to. And every, every comedic th- thing they were inspired by, I wanted to know about. And, but again, it's like, that's just the sort of, that's the culture of, uh, of what it was like and for me. And I think for everyone up until my age mm-hmm. was, you know, like you found this weird little community and just kind of wedged your way in and then just listened to the people that seemed like they were so wise, but they were only three years older than you. Yeah. But it felt way, way more mature. Yeah. I would also be remiss to, to not mention, you know, the other way to really discover stuff, like, you know, s- soundtracks were so important in a way. Yeah. And to me, the, the SLC punk soundtrack, um, I feel like something that may have come up for you before, certainly not in the episodes I, I, I've checked out so far, but, um, that soundtrack was like really important and really exciting. Do you remember that soundtrack? Uh, now, I'm, now, now that you brought it up, like I remember being really awesome. I'm trying to remember who's actually on it. Well, it was definitely how I heard about dead Kennedys. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. This, yeah. So- uh, it's all old school stuff though, right? Like they didn't have yes, movies. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I'm looking at it now. It's like, uh, so this movie came out in 98 movie or the soundtrack came out in 99. I loved this movie. And this was, you know, again, just like looking at this, it's such a culture I wanted to be a part of, but suicide machines, the exploited fear, the stooges, specials, Ramones, Blondie, generation X, Velvet Underground, Adolescence, Dead Kennedy's Minor Threat. This is a perfect soundtrack. That's a perfect soundtrack. Like, what a handbook to kind of give someone. And it's just, like, such a fun, sweet, like, corny comedy of a movie. But, you know, I saw it, and I was already kind of dipping my toe into loving a lot of this music. But then just, you know, buying the soundtrack, and then basically ended up buying albums from any of those bands that I was not yet familiar with. And... You know, it's just what a, what a great way to discover things at that time. So were you also kind of parallel to this, uh, a movie kid too, like a video store kid as well? I was, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, because I just, I wanted to be in that TV studio and shooting and making things. Yeah. So that was definitely what I've always felt. I mean, I, I can't, you know, for the life of me play music at all. And I never could, and I never would be able to, it's just not in my brain that didn't stop me alex trust me it's, that's it's, what people say but you have to you have to know something about it i i really i i, I i'm not going to challenge you on this but i i think i might give you a run for the money on this one but go on. i don't know i mean i you know making this movie so many times where someone will pick up a guitar and say do you hear how out of tune that is and i just say no it sounds like a guitar <laughs> yeah exactly like i just i just don't get it i just i just like it so it was never something i felt drawn towards even attempting to learn or understand mm-hmm. it was always just about shooting stuff and the community of it yeah yeah absolutely so what was the, what were the video stores that you kind of were going to in your town at that point was it like blockbuster or was there still like local stuff well, yeah, there were a lot of blockbusters around that sort of was the beginning of, of where my head was at. But then there was this this store right down the street. It was actually the closest one to my house, uh, actually right near Repo Records, called TLA. Okay. Which was a small chain. I think at its peak there was maybe eight or nine of them 
stretching no further than from Philadelphia to New York. But there were two or three around me and then one or two in the city. And then there was one in, in the West Village. But TLA was the first place that was introducing me to categorizing things by, you know, director sections and things like that. Okay, yes. But again, just was staffed by these people that seemed so old and knowledgeable. I was in high school. They were obviously now, in retrospect, college students. <laughs> but just, you know, it was the same as what I was feeling down in the, in the basement studio, which was just, this was a resource for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it was like, so when you started hanging with these older kids, is that when you started going into Philadelphia for shows? or was it Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I was going in, as I already mentioned, with my parents, but this was when I, you know, having a, there's a difference between having parents who are willing to take you somewhere and having friends who have a driver's license. Yes, absolutely. So they would, you know, they would be, but you know, a lot of the shows that I'm mentioning, like the sort of, here's a flyer for my band, those were not in the city. Those would have been in the suburbs or adjoining areas, but being able to, to get also, you know, it was like. This is one of those things that it's just never going to be true again. But, you know, there's no cell phones. I would just take the train into the city, sometimes by myself. Because uh, the, uh, do you know the venue in Philadelphia, the Trocadero? Yeah. Which I think closed last week after 130 years. I think they have, don't they have like, was that last week? They've got a big final show where they're going to have bands play all day, right? I think it, I mean, it is in the process of close. If it hasn't yeah. had their final day yet, it's any day now. Any day now. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, that, that's like a block from the train station. So I could get there from, you know, not my house, but like the train station that was five minutes from my house to the Trocadero, I could do by myself. And just so long as I didn't miss the last train back, which I never did because that train's pretty late. Um, I could just go to the Trocadero and then come back on the train and just was trusted with no way of communicating that this was a perfectly valid thing to do. Yeah. No, Philadelphia, it's, it's, it's amazing how many, you know, like, I guess how many people live in that area and, and, but there's so many venues, right? Like there's, you know, the Trocadero, like you're saying, there's a electric ballroom, electric, electric factory, yeah. electric factory, sorry. And then there's the, then the, of course the church as well. And then all sorts of other like basement venues that have popped up over the years as well. Like, it just feels like it is a real fert fertile kind of area, especially city for music. And, then, and there's so many, there's so many more now that I'm not even aware of. Like I see things that are playing there that I, yeah, I don't even know what these venues are and all the other ones still exist. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, but it's, it, but as a young kid though, was it intimidating? Cause it is a tough city. Like I've seen some, like some of the gnarliest behavior at punk shows in Philadelphia. Um, I mean, I was always intimidated. I was never someone who would step into something like that and feel especially comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Um, I always, you know, felt a little, I never just walked in and said, I feel so, so perfectly at home here. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, even like later when through these, these friends, um, that I was making or people I was working with in the TV studio, I'd be going to, you know, house shows or basement, basement shows with people. I still always felt like this is like a $5 show in someone's house, but I still don't feel like I belong here, even though clearly I've heard about it and I'm here. So that, that sets me apart from most people. Yeah. Well, I, I feel awkward in those house shows because you're actually in someone's house at that point. And yeah, like but that's kind of part of it. I mean, yeah. sort of j jumping around a little bit, but before I, before I went to NYU, I weirdly went to a school in Colorado for a year okay. as a freshman. And my one and only friend 
uh, was this guy uh, who sadly I found out died like a year ago um, named J.P. Stoyer, who was in a band called No Policy. And he was like a Escondido punk guy that just I befriended immediately because we were both people who had no friends at this school. And just through him, like, you know, he I was so unhappy and he had a van and he knew all these Denver people. So I was always going into Denver with him and was always hanging out at the uh, at the Scott Bale Army House. Yep. Does that mean anything to you? I know the, I know the band Scott Bale's Army. Yeah. So like those were his really good friends, and just because I had nothing else to do and he was my only friend, I would go and hang out like at their house a lot and see many of their shows with him, and you know just kind of like through him got to know a bunch of other people around that that area that were kind of pleasant to be around but definitely spent plenty of time in houses and house shows at that time i I remember getting to college myself and just kind of being so disappointed at how un different from high school it was in the end yeah it was kind of a harsh adjustment i mean i was only in colorado for a year and stayed in touch with uh, jp and was pretty shocked and sad to hear that he died uh still don't really know anything about that because i don't have any other mutual people i could learn about this from but uh but you know like that's just jumping ahead but yeah i always i was always happy to be in these situations where i felt kind of uncomfortable but i always felt very comfortable in the in the basement of the first unitarian church absolutely absolutely i, I was just there we played there gosh three uh three months ago now and still feels amazing still fun. i haven't been in years i imagine it would still just be phenomenally fun yeah still phenomenally fun i don't think there's I really don't know how much has changed since last time you were there, to be honest with you. I think you could step into it and feel like you're stepping back in time. Yeah, I don't know what could change. Yeah, like really, they're not, yeah, the backstage is still the the church itself. And uh, yeah, it's still, still, yeah, you're right. There's not too much you could change with that place. It's among the hottest I've ever been in a venue. Like seeing a show there that is sold out in July um, is like one of the most, you know, uncomfortable and also totally, totally pleasurable experiences. Yeah. It's the, it's, you're right. It's that perfect level of discomfort where, you know, you're not going to ever forget it, but it just makes that show all the more memorable. Yeah. I think my number one all time there, which for years I just always maintained is one of the best shows was first time I saw against me was, you know, obviously not their first tour, but one of their first more substantial tours, but it was there. And, I was so into the EP and, and reinventing Axl Rose and seeing that show there. I was like, I cannot believe the immense power of this band in this venue. Mm-hmm. Oh, especially on that, and that record too. Like that was a, a like a, such a watershed kind of record. Yeah. And it had, you know, it was like new at the time of the show and I had not yet seen them and have been so obsessed with, with the album. And that was probably my all time favorite first Unitarian church experience. I forget even what band I was driving with at that time, but it was it was such a definitive record. It was like almost like, have you heard Reinventing Axl Rose yet? Like it was like a, a thing you kind of needed to hear. Like I guess like Refuse had done it a few years earlier with Shape of Punk to come. Yeah, which which is uh, I just recently found my case of that, and I was and it was empty, and I was like, where <laughs> is this? I mean, that's an album I love. So again, so like I got to a point like pretty swiftly where like through these guys I was hanging out with, you know, like the the totemic pieces of music like that. Also a big thing that these guys in the TV studio were really into that they absolutely are responsible for turning me onto was at the drive-in, mm-hmm. which again, like we're blurring definitions here a little bit, but 
that's just like a band I would not have known about were it not for hanging out with, with these people down in the studio. Yeah. And, I guess but, yeah but, sorry, go on. Well, refuse. It was like them and refuse was the two things that those guys were just obsessed with that. I just couldn't imagine where I would have heard about them otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Like it was like the, you know, the refuse record, the against me record and, and that record, you know, like those are the records that people were like, you have to hear this. Like this, those are records that caused like shifts where, all these bands started sounding like they were trying to be those bands afterwards. Yeah, it was pretty exciting because, again, I was, you know, such like a historian snob and was so into 70s and 80s bands that, you know, there was no way I would ever get to see that to have anything new felt very exciting. Mm-hmm. It's like a reason to listen to something other than just continuing to tell everyone that, you know, these bands that don't exist anymore are my favorites. Yeah. Oh, I know that feeling. <laughs> uh, so when you did get back from Colorado, what made you decide you didn't want to go back there and, and want to try New York? I mean, I wanted to get out of there pretty much right away. I mean, obviously what I'm describing are basically happy memories. Yeah. But um, it was just not the place for me. And I was ultimately realized right away that I was – meant to remain an east coast person mm-hmm. was there like were you already you were set on studying film at this point is it, you know? yeah i mean that was what i that was my declared major in colorado as well but um yeah i just applied to schools that i had not gotten into previously as but now i was a transfer and got into them as a transfer and thought i just want to you know I guess if NYU accepted me as a film student, that's the school I, I should probably be going to. Yeah. And what was it like kind of arriving new, new, in like New York at that time, having, you know, come from Colorado, but also, you know, you've been to Philadelphia and stuff, but what was the differences between the scene there versus what you'd experienced? Well, the problem is that around this time, I, you know, like the kind of music that I was so in love with when I was younger, mm-hmm. um, like I just, it just didn't, come with me at this point and it has kind of taken me until the last like three or four years to really rediscover that because you know coming to new york at that time it was like 2002 and 2003 mm-hmm. like there was you know like you know that book the new book uh, meet me in the bathroom yeah like there was actually something very exciting and new happening that i felt very excited to be right in the middle of and my focus really moved to that and, you know, then I worked at Kim's, which was obviously a video store, but our, our, our floor also sold uh, all the vinyl. Mm-hmm. So I was just like now in a groove where whatever, you know, we would listen to every new album. And, you know, it was largely these kind of like indie bands that, you know, there's no discernible genre to them, but they definitely weren't punk or anything that I had basically spent my youth listening to. And then just, you know, that I just didn't have the access to that as the culture and working in a store and being around, you know, that kind of person. I was no longer around the people that, you know, really like worshipped Jawbreaker and Propagandi. Uh, And then I just kind of stopped thinking about it, even though, you know, I still carried a torch for and would see, you know, any time they were coming through. I mean, it's like the fourth time I've mentioned them, but the importance of Bouncing Souls in my life, I cannot overstate. I mean, they were just one of the most fun bands to see, and I probably saw them like 10 or 12 times. 
Um, feel like, you know, but like at that time, again, this is something I got turned on to through these TV studio guys, but like Ted Leo was kind of like the last big, one of those guys for me. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, those albums were really great. Again, I don't know how much we're blurring definitions here, but saw him a bunch at that time. But yeah, I just, I didn't have the access to the people that really inspired me to look further at that point. Well, it's funny, you're, you're, but all the stuff you're bringing up, like that whole scene, like Ted Leo, especially like. That to me is almost like, you know, that was the new post-punk or the new post-hardcore, you know, like it's, there's just, you know, Dave from um, TV on the radio or, or um, Nick from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Like there's just always like a punk hardcore person that had played in a punk hardcore band or, or a couple people that had played in punk hardcore bands that at, were all part of this thing that was kind of exploding in New York at that time. Yeah, very much so. Um yeah, I guess I was at that point very happy to sort of be post all yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it feels like that scene, you know, like it, 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 there was such an energy in, in New York at that point, too, where it was, uh, yeah, I don't know, like I guess it's the the people that were birthed by the Nirvana explosion or just the wave of music before that kind of coming to, to full bloom. Yeah, and, you know, that was kind of where my head was at. And it's only recently in the last couple of years, largely through a couple of writing projects culminating in her smell that I really just started re-listening to a lot of this stuff and thinking, not only does this make me feel in a more specifically positive and uplifted way than anything else I've ever listened to, but this is now I really think, you know, the most important music of my lifetime and the music I am more interested in essentially just crouching on indefinitely as opposed to trying to find things that are not like this. Yeah. Yeah. It always comes back to the bouncing souls. It does. But you know, like beyond that, I mean, again, like just getting into these labels and, you know, having the discord catalog and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, let's just like just going one by one through that was really exploratory and important and then before I knew it, it became historically important, mm-hmm. which it didn't seem like necessarily at the time. Yeah. No, you're right. Like, it's weird looking back on it now and, like, how much more weight, you know, even Blink-182 has now. Like, Blink-182 is classic rock. I guess so. I can't say that's something I really carry a torch for. <laughs> no, I'm not saying – no, in, not specifically in, them. I'm not weighting them at the same level as the Discord stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it, it is it is interesting to think – the, yeah, I mean, perhaps had I not wanted to see them in 1997, I would not have seen Bad Religion for the first time. Yeah, yeah. No, or or uh, Red Cross with the presence of the United States. <laughs> that to me is still one of the weirder pairings I've heard about. Yeah, but I remember it. I remember it so clearly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what? Getting back to Kim's for a second, what was it like getting a job at that video store? Because that is like. That is the video store. Like, that's the legendary video store. Like, you were obviously aware of it before you applied, I'm sure. Yeah, I was a customer. I mean, I, I was at NYU, so it was right right centrally located. And I was there, you know, probably three or four times a week just as a customer because it was directly in between NYU and my dorm. And, yeah, I just loved it so much. And I'd never gotten to work at TLA in Bryn Mawr, but I'd always wanted to. But I'd been too young. Um, I'd worked at Suncoast at the mall, which is not nearly as cool. So I always, you know, it just became a place that was similar to the TV studio, really fixated on becoming a part of. And 
yeah, I just for a year, probably every week, whenever I came in, I would just say, hey, you know, if, if anything's opening up. And I think eventually they got tired of me asking that, <laughs> you know, so I was like 19 at the time. And I mean, it was it was phenomenal because it just was the place for me to learn and just hang out and do what I kind of now realize I'm describing as a very consistent pattern and just kind of put myself at the mercy of people who seem like they know a little bit more than me mm-hmm. about a lot of different things and just say, what, 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 what should I be, what should I be excited by? What, what, what would, what would really pique my curiosity? Yeah. So it was great. I mean, yeah, I was, you know, 19, 20 and 21, 22 when I worked there, it was probably the years got paid in cash, just, you know, hanging out. You could watch movies. You could put on albums that were there. You could open a new album and put it on. You know, anything used you could listen to. And, you know, I was there 40 hours a week and then, you know, would get off work and just stand around for another hour or two and then go out uh, with people f- from working. I mean, it's like the definition of a, of a little culture. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was it's also a great period for stuff coming out on DVD. Like it would seem like the period where all the like exploitation, Blue Underground, and and you know obviously Criterion and stuff. Like there was just so much um, digging into the history of film and cinema and all this. Very much so. Yeah, I mean you know Bill Lustig who ran Blue Underground was probably in the store twice a week. Oh, that's awesome. Um, of course, a great director in his own right, and and Frank Henenlotter was in probably three or four times a week. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so, you know, through him and through other certain employees, you know, my exposure to everything on Blue Underground or actually more specifically something weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, obviously I'm, we're changing the topic here, but I view this as the sort of like cinematic equivalent and continuation of the sort of low, disreputable, but passionately beloved culture that, that you know, we're, we're kind of looking at the equivalent of in both 100%. movies and music. hundred uh, percent. It's never going to be the most popular. It's never going to make the most money, but it has the most obsessive fans who will follow it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And this was all stuff that was unknown to me. And yeah, through a lot of coworkers, I you know, spent like my first summer there. I started in February. So when I got to summer and I didn't have class anymore, that summer I probably watched 200 something weird movies because each one is a double feature each one is 70 minutes long and we would watch them at work and then i would take one home and i would watch the other movie at home and yeah it was everything about low budget horror and exploitation yeah and really what i was learning at that time which i never thought about and this again goes back into the sort of like emotional and aesthetic value of something like a basement show but those were really, you know, we're talking movies from the 60s and early 70s before there was even such a notion as an independent movie back when they were just called exploitation movies or, you know, you know, drive-in movies. Those were independent. I mean, these were $50,000, $100,000 films. Yeah. And though that's the equivalent of like an album that's made and mixed in two days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's independent before that even was a term that even mattered because there was nothing to even consider it independent of. There was just the system and then these other things that no one cared about. And then discovering that was such a, such an emotional and aesthetic revelation that there was this entire alternate history of cinema that would never be taught in any classroom and would never be canonical by any traditional measure. And, you know, similar to certain kinds of music, it's like, bands that will never be thought of as the canon, but to some people are the entirety of what you care about. 
and is its entire own alternate reality where the biggest things don't even register by the smallest things of most mainstream metrics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And it's, and it's also like, it's stuff that you wouldn't learn. Like you said in a classroom, like this is, you almost have to work in a video store. Like it's cliche post Quentin Tarantino to say it, but like, you know, this is like real college for film. Like I went to film school and I didn't learn half as much as I learned working at the video store. Yeah. I mean, I certainly am very much the same and, have have said it have said as much for years um one, one thing also you said a lot that i've read in some interviews is like your approach to making you know films and, and just the idea that like you don't have to spend millions and millions of dollars to do it you can do it you know like you're saying like on, on an independent kind of budget is that coming from punk rock or is that coming from sort of that something weird uh you know like um basement film kind of world it's both i mean it's certainly a combination of both um, it's really just, you know, it's, a, it's an attitude that's just, just get it done. Yeah. I mean, you know, people always, I do Q and A's and people say, you know, what advice do you have? And it's like, I, my first movie, I made it when I was 23 years old and it cost $15,000. If that doesn't make sense to you, then I don't really know what to say in the exact same equivalent way of like a band saying like, how do I get started? It's like, I record four songs for $500 and your friends like what What do you want me to say like just do it I don't know yeah if you don't if that doesn't make per if you have to have someone explain to you that that's what you should do then um you might not be able to do it <laughs> so yeah I mean it just feels like a total you know means to an end and much like a lot of this music the the scrappiness and the resourcefulness of it and the inherent lack of polish is what I like about it yeah. And the, the lack of money and the lack of precision is so much more appealing than some long belabored pricey piece of product. Yeah. Like it's the, the passion comes across way more when it's raw like that. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of special. all we ever had. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, call it what you will, but whether it's music or making these tiny movies to start, it's still, you know, someone in the press or when you're at the festivals is, or, you know, however you're releasing whatever you've done, someone is going to call it DIY. And that definitely means the same, no matter what the, what the end result is. Like how, how has it changed though? Like getting a film exhibited versus like when these people were doing it and when they're, I guess like, you know, there were distributors driving around with, you know, reels in the back of station wagons from town to town type thing. But now, like, it feels like, you know, there's just such a machine you'd kind of have to get into to get your film out there. Yeah, there is and there isn't. I mean, my first movie, I definitely I participated in this thing that was designed as a sort of touring uh, festival type thing where basically these guys would just drive around in a van. And they would go to cities and do two nights in Los Angeles and one night in San Francisco and, you know, three movies a night, five movies a night. And you know, this is 2009 and it really made perfect sense to me. And I, I dropped in on a couple of these screenings in the, you know, the more major cities. And again, like if you've showed up at a screening that you flew to Austin for, and there's 15 people there and you can consider that a victory, then you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. Like, because you know, and, and anyone who's, I guess, been in bands, which is not me knows that like, 
sometimes there's a hundred people and sometimes there's 20, but you know, if, if 20 is enough for you to feel like there's a reason for you to go to the next one, then perhaps that's all you need. And my all time low is two. I had a screening once that there were exactly two people at that felt bad. Yeah. But yeah, I could feel that. But people have been there. Like it's an amazing, you know, I mean, all my friends, we've had so many conversations where, you know, people say that they've had screenings where there was one person. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's just a fun thing to compare. And I'm sure this is something that anyone in any, any two people from two bands could have the exact same conversation. Yeah. Like it, and, but you know, it just seems like in bands and music, it's, it's much more of a common conversation. Whereas in film, it seems like so many people are, are, I don't know, not scared off by it, I should say, but are, are just like unable to do, you know, like, you know, you're saying like, yeah, my first film, you know, was $15,000. It's like, you tell a band, Hey, you guys got to raise $15,000 to put up this record. They're probably not putting out a record. Maybe. I mean, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's, I just, I'm, I, I look at the scope of what you do and I'm just in awe of it compared to like what it takes to be in a band. And maybe I do do a lot in the band. Geez. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah. I mean, it really, you know, it's funny. Like I've, there's so much of this in her smell and I've sort of tracked it like throughout the, the press and the narrative of some of the bands in the movie. But like, you know, I made these two movies, one called Impulax, which was the one I mentioned, it's 15,000. And the next one, the color wheel, which was 20,000. And then I made Listen Up, Fill Up, which cost just under a million. And, you know, that is to me, like, as I talk about it in terms of the bands and her smell, like, that is like a cassette and a seven inch. And then we got to like make a full album. Like we got to do these two little like, proof of concept things that are not great by any real measure, but that's okay. Like they, they show what, what's inside and then you get to like do a bigger thing. And then it's just kind of what you make of that. Well, and how much of the budget for her smell was spent making sure that you had this music in there? Um, the, the originals or the licensing, the licensing, I mean, like how much, how, like, um, cause it seems like geez. that would have been something that, you know, could have been done a lot cheaper with, you know, not using the actual songs. Well, the only song song that we have is the runaway song that plays over the end credits. But, Everything else is covered on screen by the characters. But Joe, 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 you have to pay for that? Like, like yeah, the, the runaway song, song we stuff? paid for. And no, but even like the only one song and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, that stuff, like the way that, the way that licensing, um, songs for movies works is there's, there's, I mean, obviously as any musician knows, there's publishing rights and then there's master rights mm-hmm. to get the master rights, which is what we do for the runaway song. That's like, that's the real money to get the publishing rights and then have a cover of it, that's generally, you know, 20% of the cost. Because then you have, you know, so like that's why you hear in a commercial, like on TV, you know, a note perfect cover of a famous yeah, song. The, the sound like version. Yeah, exactly. Because that's just much more cost efficient. So yeah, I mean, if we want it, I mean, I'm just pulling these numbers out of thin air, but if I said we need to have the only ones recording in the movie, it could be $50,000. And if I say we have a, a cover that's been recorded and tracked out 
uh, and the actors are going to sing it. And, you know, we have people playing it on the track. It's probably like five or 10,000. Um, so not a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, and again, like, I mean, the movie does have a, a scene where the main character performs a Brian Adams song, but like the publishing licenses for non masters recordings of like the only ones Coxbar, Charles Manson, like these don't break the bank. Like these are by design, the correct kind of songs for the movie. And also like it, it doesn't cost an arm and a leg to get the publishing rights for a character on screen to cover Coxbar. Yeah. Which is great because that's what I really wanted her to be playing. And also, how fucking awesome is it that you made a movie where a character's covering a Coxbar song? I think it's phenomenal. It's I fucking mean, amazing, dude. It's amazing. It's a big, it's a big win for me. And that was always designed as a as a Coxbar moment. Originally, you know, of course, we're coming back is obviously a much covered and much, you know, just a, a perfect, great song. So I always kind of had that in there as a placeholder. But then the more I was listening to them during the rewriting when I got to the song that's in the movie, which is because you're young, the lyrics at the moment where the character is meeting the, the sort of younger band was just, yeah, I just heard those lyrics and I thought this is so great. And it was from an album that was actually much closer to the events of the movie. Mm-hmm. So it felt like, yeah, we're going to put this in there. And then, yeah, whenever I look at the, um, the credits at the end with the songs where it says like, you know, because you're young, Garbage Dump, written by Cox Barr and Charles Manson, performed by Elizabeth Moss. I'm like, that's a pretty good use of other people's money, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you never played in any band? You never, you never tried it? No, I mean, I could. I, I you know, was in the, the, high, the middle school band because that was a class. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I mean, they put me in like cymbals percussion because in the sort of audition or you know trial and error they probably were just like this guy the only thing he can do is hit something with a mallet <laughs> well in that case you look at her smell you know getting that vinyl like a ridiculous vinyl release um of the soundtrack you look at that as being kind of the uh you know like you're getting your chance to finally put out your punk record kind of i mean it's really fun um to be involved with the design and the layout of those so yeah so we have a two lp release that's the score on two two records and then a seven inch with the four original songs yeah. which the the three ones performed by by becky in the movie uh or with the full band something she or written by alicia boniano from bully and then the uh the acre girls who are the younger band in the movie their song is written by uh, anika pyle from chumped and katie ellen uh both incredibly talented women who i was very flattered by their willingness to collaborate with someone who literally cannot communicate with them about what they do (laughs) but yeah it's really it's really fun i mean it's just fun for me as a spectator it's just fun to be on set with someone who is a multi-instrumentalist teaching the actresses how to play these songs and deconstructing them and walking them through this part and that part and having you know both alicia and anika visit the set at various points to sort of witness the filming of their music and you know, I mean, I got to sort of act as a producer or an overseer at best of their music where I said, here's what we need. Here's where it goes. Here's the budget we can give you to get it recorded. And 
you know, here's what we need, here's how we need it delivered. And then, you know, do your thing. You're the, you're the talent. I'm just the sort of facilitator, but I need you to, I need you to write five minutes of my movie for me. Well, it's like, I guess that's being the director too, right? Like it's, you're directing the, 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 the soundtrack at that point. Yeah. It's just, you know, they're one of dozens of people that I wouldn't dare pretend to know how they do their job. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I do it professionally, and I don't know how to do it. So believe me, it's. <laughs> but you, you, you know, you know how to talk to somebody about something. Like, so, you know, like the closest we got with Alicia. I don't know how well you know Bully. Great band, unbelievable. Um, but you know, she and the sort of early conversations about what do you want? What do we want Becky's music to sound like? And you know, we listened to her her at the time very new album, uh, Losing. And uh, and Lizzie, who plays Becky, you know, said, you know, you're very like you're very screamy, like you really, and I I can't really do that, and that's not really how I envision singing as this character. So like, if it'll help you to not be writing in the voice that you sing as, write in the voice that I feel more comfortable performing as, which then brought us to a point where the music she was writing you know, ended up landing closer to like the breeders or Elastica Mm -hmm. than Alicia's own music, which was great for her because then it wasn't just like, these are just bully songs that you can have. They were entirely different creations. Yeah. It's it's definitely a unique uh, opportunity for a musician to have too, to get a chance to write, you know, uninhibited as a character in a collaborative process. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a rare thing. Um, Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, the nucleus of all of this kind of thing, a film, a film I love and just got to present a screening of is ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, was, a, was again, a movie I didn't know about until a fellow employee turned me on to it at Kim's and it's a great, you know, obnoxious young teenage girl punk movie. And then the music in it's so good. And then you're like, Oh, this is written by uh, Paul Cook and Steve Jones. Yeah. Like these songs are incredibly good and catchy because they're written by incredibly talented and important, successful musicians. And you look at the movie and it's these American teenage girl actors. And then the band that they're touring with is half of the Sex Pistols, Paul Simonon, and then an actor, Ray Winstone, is the lead singer. And now, like, watching that movie now, almost 30 years later, nothing seems more authentic than that band and the bona fides that they hired to come into that movie. Yeah. When I, you know, when I saw it at the time, I was blown away by it. When it came out in 1985, I think people were probably just like, "Okay, sure." Yeah, yeah I could imagine like Black Randy and the Metro Squad did not move the needle at the time for people as far as a cameo in that movie. Yeah, but now you look back at it, and it's oh, just it's like goodness. it's again what I'm saying with SLC Punk, where it's like it's really a roadmap to a lot of great stuff in here if you care to follow it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it almost it needs to be kind of like misunderstood at first in a way to kind of get the next generation to really appreciate it. Yeah, well, the movie was barely released. Yeah. Like, you know, it was barely, so it just becomes a sort of cult object, but very important for me in this movie. And well, it became, and they got a sequel out of it eventually, right? Of The Fabulous Stains? No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I thought we were talking about SLC Punk. Sorry. Oh, no, no. Both, both. But <laughs> that'd be great if they did a Stains sequel. Yeah, maybe now. Now's the time. <laughs> Now's the time. Uh, Alex, this has been amazing. Uh, at some point in the future, would you come back for a part two? 
anytime. I, I would be very flattered. I feel like, again, so much more to say, but uh, thank you for having me. Well, it's been a an, a great, great chance for me to sit down with someone that, as I say, like takes this sort of punk ethos thing to the next level where, you know, in order to make your art, you got to convince a lot more people to get on board. So total respect. It all, it all makes sense. But again, been in a lot of uh, church shows and been to a lot of screenings in my movies with fewer than 15 people. So <laughs> when you come from that, you feel pretty, pretty invincible against any other problems that might arise. Thank you, Alex, for coming on the show. When you heard right there, Alex will be back for a part two. And I love that movie, Your Small. There's some awesome stuff in it, great music. So hopefully you enjoyed it too. And and hopefully you enjoyed this conversation because guess what? This is in the end. We got more Turned Out of Punk coming out for you next episode. Next time on the show, we're going to have a doozy. We're going to have a, a big one for you. Next time on the show, it is Dennis Lixon of the band refused and final exit and international noise conspiracy and you know, everything. It, it's an amazing conversation. Dennis is someone that I've been inspired by for a very long time at various times in my life in different ways. And someone who I've gotten a chance to meet and hang out with over the years. But this is the first time I've really gotten to punish him like this, like really, really punish him. Oh, this is a fantastic episode. Oh, I love getting to do this. This is a huge, huge, huge one. Uh, but that's it. Uh, check out the new Refuse song, uh, new record. Uh, it's going to be sick, and uh, this will be a sick episode for you to hear next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Go out there and make your own culture. Do what you do as best as you can, and maybe one day you'll be like Alex Ross Perry and, and you know, just level up and eventually making, you know, giant feature films and stuff. So, you know, that's – I love this show. I love it. I feel so inspired when I do these kind of episodes. So, anyway – that's it. Uh, sign your organ donor cards. Um, I, I've been saying this for a long time, and uh, uh, I, I, you know, just because people need transplants, you know, and and it, it can change someone's life when you know you no longer need these organs. And I started saying it because my aunt told me that I should say it because my uncle Bill, who who I love very much, and and oh my gosh, huge part of my life, he needed a heart transplant for a very long time, and this week he got the heart transplant, and he's he's doing he's doing well, he's doing well on his way to recovery. So, sign those organ donor cards because it is truly the gift of life, and uh, that's it. Um, wow, got got heavy at the end. I didn't expect it to get this heavy, but um, it's a good it's a good kind of heavy. Thank you everyone for listening, and I will see you next week. <laughs>